0: Well, hello, everybody, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Bible Breakdown. Very excited to go through our passage today. Um, you may notice that I say that pretty much every week. That is because it is true. I am always excited to go through um, these passages to get to open up scripture, talk about it. Um, and I always really look forward to it. So this week, we're going to be looking at a story that many of you may be familiar with. We are going to be in Acts 9, and we're going to be talking about the conversion of Saul. So Saul as a persecutor of the church. He will later, after this encounter, be renamed Paul and will become one of the most important uh, evangelists, missionaries, church planters um, in the New Testament, for sure, and all of Christian history. Um, so we're going to get to talk about his story and really what I want to focus on with his story is kind of a lot of his backstory. What where was Paul coming from? What kind of mindset was he coming in with? His religious background and things like that so that we can really I think see the miraculous nature of his conversion. And then I really want to transition that into some application for how we think of, how we interact with, how we pray for people in our lives that we think maybe could never come to know Jesus. We can't imagine any sort of circumstance under which certain people would come to know Jesus. And I'm sure that pops up a few people in your head immediately. So I want you to have them in mind um, as we talk through Paul's story and see what what does that mean for us as we interact with people like that, because what we're going to find out is really that describes Paul. He's kind of a how in the world could he become a Christian type? And then he's a huge hero of our faith. So we're going to talk about that. Um, Normally, we kind of take little chunks of the passage and then we'll talk about them. This week, um, the narrative is so good and very, uh, I think you just really miss some of the the joy of this narrative if it's broken up. So I'm going to read straight through this narrative um, and then we're going to talk about it. So it's in Acts 9, if you want to follow along, but I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 22. It says, but Saul And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests?" But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So obviously there's a lot to love about that story. There's just an incredible amount of things happening. Um, And the reaction we, we often will call people's conversion, the Damascus road type of conversion based on just the um, miraculous nature um, of this conversion. It's not a, I heard it. I thought about it. I decided it's the Lord appeared to him on the road and it's amazing and amazing things happen. This person um, who had been coming to from Jerusalem to Damascus for the purpose of persecuting Christians was now preaching the message that Christians had been preaching. So um, just an incredible story. Um, His you know, he's blind for a while and regains his sight. And we'll talk a little bit maybe about some symbolism there, Um, but What I really want to spend a decent amount of time talking about is who was Saul. So there's a couple of mentions in the passage about who he was, what he had done, what his purpose was. But then there's a lot um, that we know from later in Acts. And there's uh, a decent amount that we can learn from some of his letters as well. We're going to look especially at Philippians 3 and some of the things he said. So first... Um, Our first introduction to Saul, and I think he kind of gets a mention in this passage because of what's going to happen in his life. Um, Saul was at the stoning of Stephen. You may remember us talking about that several weeks ago. Um, It says that he stood by approvingly. Um, It says um, later on that he stood by and he watched the coats of those who stoned Stephen. So he maybe wasn't actually throwing stones, but he was making sure that while everybody did that, that nobody was going to steal their coats. Uh, I can imagine he probably wouldn't have wanted his hands dirtied by actually throwing stones, but this was a way for him to be in full support of what was happening to Stephen. So that's the first thing that we learn about Saul is that he approved of taking a message a man was sharing about God and turning that into a reason to kill him. So it's kind of sobering when you think about it that way. He thought that Stephen's message was so bad that it was worth he was approving that they decided to take Stephen's life as a result. Um, another thing that we will learn later about Paul in Acts is that he studied, studied under a rabbi, a very well-known rabbi named Gamaliel, and he was a, a well-known Pharisee, well-respected, um, high-ranking. So Saul studied under him, and he was Gamaliel was his rabbi. So you know that he was um, all about Judaism. That's what we really can take from that. He studied under one of the premier um, experts in the law, and that was what he was too. And Paul was also of the Pharisees, uh, which makes sense knowing that was his rabbi. Um, but that's that's where his study was from. Something interesting about Gamaliel, though. He for being a Pharisee, so the Pharisees were typically the more. Um, if you're going to put them on a conservative liberal. Plain. The Pharisees were typically the more conservative um, of the religious groups, the Sadducees being the more liberal, a little bit more politically focused, whereas the Pharisees were very focused on maintaining the law and not breaking the law. Um, but Gamaliel was kind of on the more liberal side of the Pharisees. And he even we see he kind of talks a little bit of rationality into some parts of the Sanhedrin when they bring in uh, John and Peter earlier in Acts. So Gamaliel is not like this super hard, rigid guy, um, but we know that he was an expert in the law. So um, some other things that we learn about who Paul was when he was Saul, we learn from Philippians three. So the first thing that he's going to mention, this is in chapter three of Philippians. um, He's going to mention, basically he's going to be talking about how, um, if if anybody should have confidence in the flesh, if anybody should be confident that they are in right standing before God based on things that they did, things that they have done, even their uh, genetics, you might say, basically Paul's making the argument. I could boast. I could boast if I was to boast in the flesh. Now he's going to turn that into weed. Nobody has a reason to boast in the flesh. It's only boasting in Christ. Um, but so first thing he mentions is that he was circumcised on the eighth day. So that's, was um, one of the major factors, one of the major indicators of a person being Jewish, of a person following the law. That was by the letter of the law, circumcision passed down from the time of Abraham, um, and it was the it was the routine. The law was to circumcise uh, boys on the eighth day. So he says, okay, right from basically, I was eight days old, and I was already, I was already well on my way to being the ideal follower of Judaism, the ideal Hebrew. Um, And he goes on to say that he's born an Israelite, which, I mean, that makes sense. If he's going to be circumcised on the eighth day, the significance there, if somebody else had reason to boast that they were part of the nation of Israel, um, it could be that they were a Gentile who's adopted into the nation, which which happened. Um, He's saying, nope, didn't even have to be adopted in. I was born. I was born an Israelite. I've been an Israelite this whole time. I was circumcised on the eighth day. He's gonna go on to say that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, which uh, Benjamin being one of the original 12 tribes of Israel. Um, there's some significance to being from the tribe of Benjamin. I think if we were to think of a, um, a maybe one of these tribes as most important, we'd think of Judah. Um, as one of the ones that most of us know. Um, but there's some interesting things about Benjamin. Um, first being that Israel's first king was from Benjamin. Anybody remember his name? His name was Saul. So it's entirely possible that this Saul maybe was a namesake of the former king Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, at least part of the city of Jerusalem was in Benjamin's territory. Things kind of moved around a little bit over time. Uh, Jerusalem wasn't originally part of the nation of Israel. It was um, run by a group called the Jebusites, and they took it. Um, but at at least part of the city at some point was in uh, the tribe of Benjamin's territory. So Jerusalem being the, the holy city, the place of most importance in the nation, at least part of it was in Benjamin, other part possibly being in Judah. Again, it's a little, not always super clear um, on geography, stuff like that. Um, And another thing about Benjamin. So um, you may remember after Solomon's reign that there. Um, that the nation of Israel, the combined tribes separated into two nations, the northern tribes, uh, 10 of them, they took, kept the name Israel and the two other tribes uh, took the name Judah. It was Judah and Benjamin. So Paul's saying, hey, look, even of the tribes, I'm in one of the tribes that, you know, had the city of Jerusalem that kept faithful to God longer um, because the northern kingdom was exiled uh, about 150 years. 160 years before the Southern kingdom. So, and and actually had some Kings that uh, the scripture describes as righteous, whereas the Northern kingdom had no Kings that were described as righteous. Um, so he's even saying, Hey, uh, I was in the good tribe that went with the, went the right direction, had some actual good Kings. So that's kind of the significance of him saying he's part of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he goes a little more, uh, a little more recent. And he says that he was a Pharisee. And again, like I mentioned, the Pharisees are, a group um, of religious leaders. We've talked about them a ton, but their, one of their biggest concerns was we must keep God's law to the letter. We cannot um, be removed from our land because of disobedience again, like they were in 586 when Babylon took over. They said, nope, we're going to, in fact, we're going to put some rules around the law so that even if we violate one of these rules, at least we haven't violated the law. So the Pharisees are... You know, you would think of them as the premier followers of Judaism because they are so invested in not breaking the law. So he's saying, I'm a Pharisee. Not only was I born, right? You know what? I studied under this really important rabbi and I became a Pharisee myself because I was that concerned with following God's law. He then goes on to say that he persecuted the church, which when, of course, we hear that we're like, That's nothing to brag about. And Paul didn't think it was something to brag about by the point he's writing Philippians either. But you can imagine that in in his mind at that time, his persecution of the church was really out of his commitment to Judaism, his commitment to following the law, um, to not blaspheming who God was by saying this person, Jesus, was God, because that's not what he believed. Um, So he cared so much about the law. He was so invested in it that he sought to persecute, even approving of the killing of people who he believed were violating God's law. So he's saying, have any of you cared enough about something to go and like round people up and try to arrest them because you think they're doing the wrong thing? He's kind of, it's a, kind of a brag in a, like I used to do this and at least my heart was in the right place. Maybe that's what he's going for, but you can, I think, see his point that it shows he cared a lot. That's for sure. Um, And then he says, as righteousness is related to the law, that no one could find fault. So he's not saying that he was sinless, but basically he was saying, as far as following the law to the best of a person's ability, nobody could call him out and say, oh yeah, Paul doesn't observe the feasts. He doesn't observe the Sabbath. He doesn't do the right tithing. He said, nope, no one could say that. No one could find fault. As far as my understanding of the law, I did everything perfectly. So he's basically saying he was the chief legalist. If you were to be a legalist, you'd want to be Paul because he was number one. So that's who we're talking about when we talk about Paul. All that really starts to stack up after a while. And you can see, I think, why Saul had such a pride in who he was. Saul saw himself as, but from the way I was born to the choices I made to how I followed the law, I did it all right. And I showed my zeal for the Lord by persecuting the church. And if you were to rank people that you thought, oh, this person will probably come to, um, you know, have faith in Jesus alone, uh, denounce any righteousness that comes just from the law, um, would denounce his heritage um, in order to follow Christ. Pretty much the absolute last person you would put on that list would be Saul. That's really the moral of this of this little uh, detour we're taking into Philippians three. If you were going to choose anybody to be a gospel driven person to other nations, if you were to think of somebody who had shared Jesus with hundreds, thousands of people, plant churches all over the world for Jesus Christ, you would not think that it was going to be Paul. He's the last person you would have thought. But when Saul encountered Jesus. It changed his life forever. He had this moment on the Damascus Road when he was on the way to persecute the church of Jesus, but he met Jesus, and it changed everything. It changed everything. Everything that he had before then, he let it go. Any righteousness that he thought based on where he was born, what tribe, how, uh, how well he followed the law, his status as a Pharisee, his zeal in persecuting the church, he gave it all up. He gave it all up because Jesus was worth it. And he says in Philippians 3, starting in verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So this person that had this heritage, had this value in himself that was based in how he was born, the choices he made, his life changed forever. And not only did he lose all the things that I just listed from Philippians 3, he lost a lot more. He underwent incredible persecution. Um, At the end of chapter 9, Saul is going to escape the city of Damascus, because people are going to start persecuting him for preaching Christ. He went through all of that, but he was happy that he did it because he had an encounter with Jesus. And so the reason I really wanted to focus on this today is for us to have a moment to think again, like I told you at the beginning, think of somebody who you think, how could this person ever believe? How could this person ever come to God, return to God, um, change their life, we start to lose hope after a while because we see the we see the disappointments regularly. There's people that maybe we've prayed for for a long time that we still see nothing in, no change, no interest in the gospel, no interest in Jesus. Or even um, maybe we saw somebody who used to um, claim to be a follower of Jesus. Now they don't. And uh, they don't seem interested in returning. Well, whoever whoever's in your mind right now I know for me, I can think of like three or four. Um, That person is no more far gone than Saul was. Saul was about as far gone as anyone can get, but he encountered Jesus. And that's what I want, the hope that I want to give us today is that when a person encounters Jesus, it changes everything. It's not just a, uh, a set of beliefs. It's not just a certain set of morals. It's not, Um, just a thing that you do on Sundays or whatever night of the week your community group meets. Um, It's, it's a life changing encounter with the God of the universe who has done things on our behalf that we can never fully understand the depth of love and grace that exists in it. And so if the Lord came to Paul and turned one of his greatest enemies into one, one of the greatest missionary and church planners of all time, we can't lose hope. We can't lose hope in thinking and knowing that if the Lord wants to, if Jesus comes to a person, that it can change someone's life. So whoever that person is that you're thinking of, people that you're thinking of, don't give up praying for them. Don't give up praying that one day they'll have an encounter with Jesus. And it may not be a Damascus road where they immediately change everything about their life that was was bad and start doing everything well. Like That's not... I think for most of us, we recognize that's not a normative Christian experience. Uh, Often there's just a a ton of growth that happens and it's a journey. But knowing that that encounter with Jesus changes everything, even if it doesn't change everything right away to its fullest extent, if that makes sense. Um, But don't, let's not give up hope. Let's continue to pray that the Lord will lead that person into an encounter with Jesus so that their life can be changed. Nobody has done anything. Nobody is too far gone for work of Christ. Nobody has done anything that can keep Christ from making a difference, from making a change. And I think Saul is an incredible example of that. Um, I want to tell you all a brief story um, kind of along these lines that I experienced personally. Um, I was talking with this person's mom just this week, but uh, I had a friend in high school. um, And when we were about a year out of high school, uh, he committed a crime, um, a capital crime, and uh, was arrested and taken to jail and um, was shortly thereafter given a life sentence in prison for something that he had done that um, was terrible. It was deserving of the punishment, and um, no one could look back on it and say, "Oh yeah, that was not a bad thing to do." It was, it was tough. It was, it was hard to see somebody that I had known and grown up with for a long time do something this horrible um, to be a capital level crime. Um, but after. I talked to his uh, his dad of a couple of weeks after the arrest and everything. And he told me that um, when his son um, went to prison, that he said for the first time in his life, he actually felt like he needed God, that he needed forgiveness. And right there in the prison cell, he accepted Jesus for the very first time in his life. And now he's been in prison for, uh about eight years, about eight years. Um, and he has life with no parole. So that's going to be where he is. And while, again, I w- would never say that what he did was worth it. Our sin is never worth it. Um, our sin is never like, Oh, it's a good thing that sin happened so that this could happen. That's, that's not it. It's more a, a moment to reflect on the grace of God to say, even though this sin happened, God made something good out of it. Um, even though I hate that he has to be in prison for his whole life, um, I am so happy that he knows Jesus for the first time um, and that he hadn't before. And a life in prison is worth an eternity with Jesus. And I'm, it's unfortunate that it came to that um, being necessary. But not only that, not only, so not only for him personally, but um, through the sharing of his story, um, dozens of people have also come to Christ after hearing his story of growing up. Um, As a pastor's kid, actually, Um, he grew up, his dad was a pastor. He was a pastor's kid and um, dozens of people since hearing his story of how um, even in the midst of utter darkness that Jesus, he encountered Jesus in this jail cell, that story has spoken to a lot of people. The Lord has used that story in a lot of people's lives. And it's just a recognition of this was kind of one of those people in my life, even though he grew up a pastor's kid, I kind of knew maybe his life. He was a person in my life. I was like, it's really hard to imagine this person ever surrendering their life to Jesus and trying to make a difference for the kingdom. Um, but I doubted a person's encounter with Jesus. I doubted what the Lord is capable of. And he's capable of great things. And to give this person an ongoing ministry in a, in a place that Maybe you or I could never visit in the same way we could you know, visit a prison, but it would never be the same as talking to someone who lives the life with you and recognizing God's providence in that, even in the midst of, of sin and a terrible situation. And that's not so different from the story of Saul here, that it's just a, a bunch of things that we wouldn't have wanted for Saul in his life for him to be, uh, a legalist, for him to persecute those who believed in Jesus, for him to approve of the death of those who believed in Jesus. We would never want those things and never think those things are good. But God in his grace was able to turn that zeal for the law and for the wrong things. And he was able to turn that zeal into zeal for the gospel. And that planted churches all over the world and resulted in letters that we hold dear for our Christian faith as we try to walk more closely with Jesus. So we can't Give up hope, even in the face of a seemingly hopeless situation with a person or even in our own lives. I think sometimes we can feel we can feel hopeless in our own lives. How am I going to change? How am I going to get better? How am I going to get over this habitual sin? How am I going to get over this habitual struggle? We just have to know and we have to trust. We have to have faith. And honestly, we we can't live life without hope. And that our hope is that an encounter with Jesus uh, doesn't leave us the same way. And that an encounter with Jesus can happen to anyone, anywhere, through any circumstances. um, And he will go to great lengths uh, in order to bring those to himself. So um, I hope that as you reflect on this story, again, for a lot of us, a pretty well-known story. I hope that it'll give us just a new resolve that the Lord is working and he's working in ways we don't understand. And he's called us to. Share his gospel, to share with, uh, to pray for others, um, to serve uh, in our local body, and I just want us to go with a renewed vigor that those things are worth it, and the Lord's using those things. But ultimately, that we can rest in the fact that He's working, and regardless of the human elements, that uh, there's a supernatural God who's working in the hearts of everyone.